Over the past year, Wake Forest Business School professors Dr. Michelle Stewart and Dr. James Neris have been investigating the effects of digital purchasing tools and the increased presence of millennials in the workforce, specifically towards business-to-business or B2B products and services. Today on the podcast, we are joined by the duo to discuss their findings and the implications which will soon come out in their new book. Michelle, Jim, thanks for coming on. Thank you. Thank you very much for having us. Well, before we get into your findings, I would love for both of you to sort of take us through each of your backgrounds. Uh, We'll start with you, Professor Stewart. Tell us a bit about your educational development. As I understand it, you actually graduated from West Florida undergrad, not in business, but in cultural anthropology. Can you sort of take us through that? Yeah, Sebastian, thank you for for talking with us about this topic. Yeah, so I was that cultural anthropology student who was a little more conservative than my peers and not, not politically, but in terms of the topics I was interested in. My first undergraduate project, I looked in 1950s Look magazine at ads for specific cultural indicators. So even then, I was far interested in marketing topics uh, than I realized. And it took me my undergrad, my master's, uh, living abroad, and then starting the PhD program in marketing to know this is what I want to do. And where did you do that PhD program? At, at Arizona State, yeah. out, out in uh, Tempe, Arizona, outside of the Phoenix area. Are you from the West or where are you I'm not. I'm from the Gulf Coast, actually, uh, out along uh, the Gulf of Mexico and Pensacola, Florida, the home of the Blue Angels and the whitest sand uh, that I've ever seen. And what sort of brought you to Wake Forest and when, how long have you been here? So I started in 2004 and I came here straight from my PhD program and in the, the job market was wonderful. I had a lot of campus visits, a lot of different types of schools. Some schools had a department of marketing like Arizona State as big as the entire business school in the undergraduate program here. But what I loved about Wake, it was the last of eight campus visits that I had. And when I came on to the campus, first it was beautiful, right? And that that shouldn't be a major selling point, but it certainly was for me. But what I loved is having my office right next to other business disciplines. Like I'm a finance professor on one side, organizational behavior on the other and accounting across the hall. And I think that makes me a better business educator to be around different business disciplines. So I know what they're doing, better enhances what I'm able to do. And also I think better informs my research. That's very cool. Uh, how long have you been here? So since 2004, this summer, I think will be 13 years. Wow. Time flies. Glad to have you. Now you, Professor Harris, teach in Charlotte, as I understand it. and. You actually entered the business world as well with a unique background. You graduated from UConn in cell biology. How, how does a sort of biology? Well, it's a it's a long convoluted story. But basically, when I was an undergraduate, I had aspirations of getting a PhD in cell biology. And what happened is that uh, towards the end of my undergraduate career, I sat down with the uh, head of the cell biology department, and he literally talked me out of it. And the reason was at that particular point in time, there were next to no jobs for anyone with a PhD in cell biology. So he said, this doesn't make a lot of sense at this particular point in time. So I decided that, well, I still like cell biology. What could I do? And in talking to several people, including my father, they said, well, why don't you get an MBA degree and then go to work for a pharmaceutical or some kind of biotech type of company. So I got my MBA and I liked marketing so much that I decided to get my PhD. And while I was getting my PhD, I came across an opportunity to get a fellowship at the DuPont Corporation. And I was very pleased about that because that gave me an opportunity to use my cell biology and organic chemistry and all of those 
scientific courses that I took in a, and uh, combine it with business. Now, the advantage of that also was that it introduced me to business-to-business -business marketing. If you're familiar with most of the marketing professors, they're consumer products, and most of your courses are consumer-oriented. But uh, I was so hooked on business-to-business -business that I pursued that as a career, and you know, I've spent most of my career working in B2B marketing. So if I had to tell you why am I here now, I couldn't tell you back when I was an under, I had no idea, which is good news for most students because if you don't know what your career is going to be, don't feel bad because hopefully it'll play out for you. Yeah, and that's usually how a lot of those stories you know, develop. Uh, how long have you been at Wake Forest in Charlotte? 29 years. And you've taught in a lot of other places too, as I understand it. I had an opportunity to travel around the world, and that's one of the advantages of being in business-to-business -business marketing. So, for example, I taught at Torquato Dutella in Buenos Aires, Argentina. I spent 10 years on and off teaching at University College Dublin in Ireland. I taught at Twente University in the Netherlands. I taught at the Hanka School in Helsinki, Finland, and I've been to China teaching as well as India. So I, it, it's been a, a wonderful career. Any distinct favorites out of any of those places? Any place that stuck with you the most? Well, I like, I like all of them because I find it's a function of the people. And one of the things being part of an academic community is that you get to spend the time with academics. But if I had to pick a favorite, it would be Ireland. Uh, well, good to hear. So, Jim, tell me about the impetus for the research that you and Michelle have been working on. What sort of started uh, the research into B2B decision-making processing? Certainly. If you uh, do a little reading in the uh, business publications as well as the uh, programs, a lot of the emphasis today is on what I would call digital marketing or the use of digital tools in business. One of the terms that comes up a lot is the customer journey. So when it's time for you to go out and buy a product, you're not going down to the store, going online, you're actually going on a journey. And the problem with that, and, and basically what the journey refers to is the process, the steps that you go to go through to identify you know, what your need is all the way through identifying suppliers, products, and then making the selection. The problem with that term customer journey is that everyone says, well, the customer journey today is different than it was 20 years ago. Yet, again, when you read these articles, when you listen to these pundits talk, no one gives any data or evidence that, in fact, the journey is different. So basically, we decided that we were going to document or validate the journey and in particular, we're going to focus in on business to business as opposed to, you know, most there's a lot been written and discussed about the consumer buying process, but next to nothing about how businesses buy in today's digital world. So that was the focus of our efforts is basically to nail down evidence that the journey is different and then to figure out how it is different. Yeah, and it's interesting because in your research, you use a lot of uh, examples in consumer uh, sourcing and experiencing, such as like Yelp and all those research, uh, all those websites as well to sort of influence on how you're going to approach these sorts of uh, research. Anyway, Michelle, what factors have you found uh, are the primary causes of the changes you and Jim are seeing in the B2B world? Yeah, and you, you kind of mentioned one of those that's that's interesting. So as we, we have tools, digital tools, to find the best restaurant, to find the best software, best movie, 
we become very accustomed to those in our personal lives. When we go to work, we take off that consumer hat and we put on our business to business decision maker hat, but we still have a, a thirst and we have a knowledge that those tools actually exist. So when's the prevalence of digital tools to rate and review products in the consumer world and the, the wish for those in the business to business world. The, the second is, you know, more than half of business to business decision makers, so people who decide what sorts of products and services a company buys to input directly into their products or services or indirectly the things that they might use in the company, more than half of those are millennials, all right? So young people who, for the most part, are digital natives, grew up having access to review and rating sites, grew up having information online rather than having to go to a trade show or a conference to find out what's new and great. The third is kind of an interesting thing. I know my students always look for what sorts of jobs are growing. And if you look at the procurement area as a, as a place where someone might get a job, it's the slowest growing of all management functions. It's growing at only about 2% a year up through 2020. And part of that is because a lot of the traditional functions now can be taken over by some electronic tools. So what do you see are sort of the consequences of these changes then? Yeah, I think the big piece is that there's there's some catch up that has to happen. We're in the business to consumer world. Boy, we can we can find anything we want pretty fast, uh, and some of that is still being caught up to in the business to business world, and that's frustrating for young employees who are looking to make high stakes decisions on rather complex products. They have even more need of more of better information and more of that better information. So there's a lot of opportunities in, in sales and marketing uh, to help facilitate these business-to-business deci -business decision-making tasks. Yeah, so Jim, tell us then, if uh, if a business-to-business -business salesperson is out of the early part of the loop in a way, what are sort of procurement professionals using then? What type of digital tools are available for them to well, this is the intriguing part of it. And again, this is one of those statistics that everyone cites that you're hard pressed to find documentation. But the claim today is that a professional purchasing manager completes 57% of the buying process before they actually contact a supplier salesperson. And you know, obviously they're using digital tools as opposed to talking to someone face-to-face. -face. From a marketing and sales standpoint, that really begs the question, if that's the case, what's the purpose of a salesperson? And there have been all kinds of gloom and doom articles and commentaries about the fact that you don't wanna be a salesperson anymore because uh, you're gonna be out of work. My son, Ryan, who graduated from Wake Forest about 10 years ago, worked for a while as a salesperson at Hendrick Honda in Charlotte, and they're gradually replacing the salespeople with kiosks. So you basically go into the dealership and you plug in what it is that you're looking for, and then a representative comes over and he or she takes you out for a test drive and works through uh, you know, the, the paperwork, but they're not salespeople. So uh, the question is if, if 57% is done before they talk to a sale, what does the salesperson? And so that's part of our research. Now, obviously what this means is that professional purchasing people are looking at a whole host of digital tools to accomplish this. 
And we found that there's three basic areas, a lot of tools, three basic areas. The first thing that they're going to do is they're going to search. And they're looking not only for new products, new suppliers, but more importantly, technology. As a matter of fact, we call one of their tasks technology scouts. And obviously, you use something like Google search for that. Now, once you narrow down on a product category or a type of supplier, then you need to go to something that's often referred to as an e-catalog. So for example, there's a set of systems out there called ThomasNet, which basically you go on, you key in what it is that you're looking for, and it'll give you a whole host of suppliers that, that uh, provide you with that. So search is an important first step. The second step is actually managing the transaction. So as opposed to having the salesperson come by with an order book and literally take your order, now you have to order online. Now, most people are familiar with consumer products will say, well, why is this a biggie? Um, you know, just go to amazon.com or something. Well, if you're ordering a jet engine, you can't go to amazon.com and, and order this. But it turns out that there's a whole host of additional tools that you can use to do the ordering. So for example, uh, Ariba has a whole bank of online software that allows you to put in re requests for quotes, requests for proposals. You can do the transaction online, you can get invoices, you can schedule delivery and, and so on and so forth. So managing the transactions is something that's done. And then one of the other areas that's, I think, very distinctive in B2B versus business to consumer is that you have what's called vendor management, which means that once I've placed an order, chances are I'm going to go back and order again. And as a matter of fact, a lot of times you place one year, five year contracts, which means that you have to manage an ongoing vendor over time. So there's a whole series of tools that allows you to keep track of whether the product is delivered, does it meet specs, um, and uh, what is the payment schedule for it. So uh, that's possible. One of the other areas that we found is the growing use of online customer reviews. Now, again, as a consumer, I, you know, pretty much everyone is familiar with sites like Yelp, where I'm in a new town, I wanna find a restaurant, I go online, and I get uh, you know five stars, three stars, whatever, and I make my choice. Well, we found that that's beginning to emerge in the business-to-business -business space. So for example, one of the key sites that we've spent time with is a site called Vendop, which has something like 40,000 uh, products or more on it. And then recently we've come across one that's called G2 Crowd, which basically does everything in the information technology arena. And the interesting thing about these sites is that they actually have detailed recommendations from business professionals. And so for example, with the G2 crowd, they actually have these folks, you, don't, you just go in and type a bunch of comments. They have a 32 question questionnaire, which gets into all these technical aspects of the product so that you can go to that site and you not only find out you know, what rating did they get, but you can get all of these technical details about how well they delivered and things of that nature. So again, going back to the point is that this dramatically changes how purchasing is done on a business standpoint. Again, 
I can do much of this research, the detailed background information online now from all of these reputable sources, what does the salesperson do? So that, that's the question of the hour. Yeah, and it seems like with a lot of that, now we're steering away from just you know acquiring the product and acquiring the necessary materials, and now really what that experience is like between both both businesses in a way. These- well, absolutely. That's and again, that's where this idea of vendor management. You know, again, uh, you're going to be doing business with these folks for years on end. You want to make sure that they're easy to deal with, that their invoices are correctly. And, you know, with businesses as well as consumers, there's a certain chemistry. So either you get along with the supplier or you don't. And companies are very interested in having relationships with suppliers where they have that good flowing chemistry, positive Mm -hmm. vibe. So how did you go about the research methodology for this experiment? What was, what was your sort of way of gathering the data? Well, so in, in the sciences, you might have a laboratory with a microscope and some test tubes and an eyedropper and probably a whole host of other gadgetry. In the social sciences, we use a lot of different research methodology that involves getting the insights of decision makers. So we used a field experiment. And sp- field experiments can get complicated quick, but the essence of the idea is that we developed uh, with real purchasing professionals, so with real people who their day job is business-to-business decision-making, developed a a series of scenarios. And we changed one or more variables in those scenarios and showed them to different groups of people to get their insights. And with the field, we've, we've done about five or six field experiments, two or three surveys, and upwards of 100 one-on-one hour long phone interviews. Uh, to, to get these insights. But the cool thing about two or three thing, cool things about the experiments. First, we shared with purchasing professionals in this field experiment different types of scenarios. One scenario involved positive reviews. Another scenario involved negative reviews. So I love the supplier. They scored nine out of 10. Or I didn't like the supplier. They scored three out of 10 with lots of details about the setting. Within these scenarios, so it was positive or it was negative. But then there was a source of the review that either came from another company besides the company thinking of buying the product or came from something within the company called a vendor scorecard, which is like a report card for a supplier. So some scenarios had positive reviews from internal sources, some had positive from negative sources. On the other side, some had negative reviews from internal sources or negative reviews from external sources. And what we were interested in is if a purchasing professional was looking to see how a supplier performed, which of those stimulated greater outcomes to learn more about the supplier, to have a better attitude about a supplier, to actually buy from the supplier, and to share with others about that supplier. The one variable that I think is of of most interest is this idea of their willingness to learn more, to investigate further. And what we found that was the most curious to us is that when a supply manager, a purchasing professional, was reading about a negative review, so a supplier that underperformed, the external negative review stimulated greater interest in learning more. This was curious to us because we our hunch was, if it's negative, it's a deal breaker. Why would I go to a restaurant on the consumer side? Why would I go to a restaurant that had negative review? No matter where it came, if it came from a family member, if it came from an external. What we found in business to business, there are a lot more factors that go into this decision, right? And so the the purchasing professional is looking to see, was that other company 
that gave the supplier a poor review, were they the same as us? Were their teams as talented as ours? Or were there, did their teams have different types of experience, different types of technical backgrounds? Was their culture different? What caused this misfit in this supplier to underperform? Was it the supplier, suppliers just underperforming? Or was it in fact something within the nature of that buying firm? And so that stimulated that interest in learning more. So after that, Jim and I decided let's hone in on these negative reviews because they're not deal breakers. And, and so we continued to look at, well, what happens if you had two reviews that you read together at the same time? One was from an internal source, your vendor scorecard. So your company had had some experience with them somewhere in the pocket of the company and external sources. What if we paired those two together, an internal and an external source? And we split all the options, so two positive, two negative, and then two mixed, whether positive internal or negative internal, paired with the opposite external. And what we found is quite interesting. In the mixed review setting, so two reviews, one from within the company paired with one from outside the company. When those mixed reviews, when it was positive internal, we, we got what we expected, greater overall engagement with the supplier. But when we just looked at this interest in learning more, there was no significant difference in the mixed reviews and where the positive review came from. And this, this led us in some of our interviews, we uncovered this notion that purchasing professionals, they're really truth seekers. They're looking for what's best for their company. I mean, these are large, often multi-million dollar purchases that they're making in many cases. Complex, they affect the brand, they affect what that business does. And so when they see a positive review within the company, the concern is, was there too cozy of a relationship between that internal customer, whether it's engineering or operations or some pocket of manufacturing with that company? Was there some favoritism or cronyism or some sort of bias, whether implicit or explicit? So they're truth seekers and that they wanna find out maybe they're not getting the best from this supplier. Maybe there's someone better out there that they could use to leverage. Alternatively, when there was a negative review, they're looking for this fit issue. Like what was the problem? Who's to blame? So they're constantly looking to uncover the facts and the truth. In the marketing literature, most, most of the science doesn't talk about this at all, right? First, it doesn't talk about the B2B decision-making process in the ways that we've been looking at it. And it surely doesn't talk about some of the things that are influencing that truth seeker, that purchasing professional that's the heart of the business to business decision. And some of the interesting things they have to balance with their internal customer who has wants and needs that may be very specific and in a slew of suppliers that they may have to select from to build these long-term relationships that Jim was talking about. Yeah, it sounds interesting because now with this sort of digital landscape, they're not only able to have clear information and more aggregated information, but they're able to sort through it as well. And they can sort of, in a way, match themselves up with a, right. with a identifiable business that sort of would have a similar experience in a way. It's, right. Uh, Jim, I understand that uh, you and Michelle are also looking at different stages of the decision-making and the analyses that are used in each stage. Can yes, absolutely. We've just completed a survey in the United States dealing with uh, not only the stages, again, going back to this idea of customer journey, but also the tools that are used in the different stages. And we had two studies, the first of which we asked them which tools they're using in each one of these stages. And then secondly, we went back and we're trying to identify what is it that leads to a decision? 
Now, the problem with stages in the customer journey is that there's anywhere from seven to 10 stages. When you do any kind of research or, 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 or survey, it, it, you can't ask that many questions. So basically, we've boiled it down to two critical decisions that a customer makes. And it's referred to as order qualifiers versus order winners. Now, an order qualifier basically gets you into the game. It's table stakes. So, for example, let's say you want to go out and buy a new car. Well, chances are you'll boil down all the hundreds of options down to five that are viable options. So the question becomes, what is it that qualifies those five models? So similarly, business purchasing managers do the same thing, right? So you get into the mix, you analyze those five, and then the second thing you're looking at is what's referred to as the order winner. There's something about that one car, for example, that you buy that caused you to pull the trigger. So basically what we're trying to do is to figure out what tools allow them to qualify suppliers and products and what tools are used to determine what the order winner is going to be. So we've uh, uh, completed this research. The findings that we found that are, are, are kind of interesting, and let me just uh, back up a second as well, in that we looked at uh, what are called non-strategic versus strategic acquisitions. A strategic acquisition is something that's critical for the company's success, some new uh, uh, chip that's used in their logic system. A non-strategic item is something that they have to have, but is not constant. So, you know, it, that's a commodity product like paper clips, hmm. right? So we basically tried to figure out how do they approach strategic versus non-strategic decisions. The first thing that we found that was intriguing was that the process that they use for order qualifiers is more or less the same for strategic versus non-strategic. Now, the thing that was revealing or interesting was the ones that were most important turned out to be things like financial risk assessment, legal risk assessment, terms and conditions, and then uh, something that's referred to as a vendor scorecard. So I mentioned customer reviews in the past, and you know Yelp is a good example. Well, one of the things that distinguishes B2B is the fact that you have internal online reviews as well as external online reviews. So that's generally referred to as a vendor scorecard. Now, in looking at those top four, the thing that struck us that's important is the importance of risk. Normally, when you talk to someone in sales or someone in marketing, they go on and on about the product, its specifications, what it does, as well as the price. But that turns out to be not the thing that actually rings the bell. It's risk. How likely is this supplier going to be in business? Are they facing any legal issues that are going to have to be resolved? Are they dependable? Will they deliver on time? So that was extremely surprising to us. Now, shifting to what were the order winners, I think the thing that su surprised us was that there are things that they look at in terms of suppliers and the things that they look at in terms of specific products. In terms of suppliers, they turned out to be relatively the same for strategic versus non-strategic. 
And these turned out to be reliability of delivery, delivery, reliability of quality. Um, and what you take away again from that is the importance of risk, right? So it's legal risk on one side, and that's reliability, which is basically probability of delivery. Now, why is that important? Well, most salespeople don't spend time on risk. And that turns out to be critically important to the customer. So that's a important aha. Now, in terms of what wins the order, in terms of the product, not surprisingly, we find that in, in the case of non-strategic products, your paper clips, more often than not, it comes down to price. So who has the lowest price? Because, you know, paper clips are paper clips. So the price makes a difference. Where it becomes significantly different is when you start to take a look at the strategic products and all of a sudden there's a shift away from price to a concept that's called total cost of ownership. And that basically refers to all the costs I incur in using a product. So it's not the price, but also usage costs. So for example, I buy a car, I have to pay a price for the car. But once I get at home, I got to buy gasoline, I've got to pay for insurance, I've got taxes, I've got maintenance, and that can last for years. So rather than merely evaluating the purchase price, I need to look at the total cost. As a matter of fact, if you go to kellybluebook.com and some of the other auto trading sites, they actually have a category now for total cost. So I can assess cars based on total cost. So that becomes more important. And, you know, in a, in a sense, that's, you know, something that's important because when I'm dealing with a strategic product that's critical, there's additional cost, there's additional technology, and the company that has the lowest price is not necessarily the one I want. The second is product quality. And again, if I'm, I'm buying a strategic product, quality is um, extremely important. And then the last one that turned out to be critically important is what's referred to as fit with requirements. So, and again, one of the differences perhaps in B2B is that you have technology people, operations people specifying what they need in terms of a product. And a lot of these things are technical rather than, golly, I like the blue color because it matches my eyes that you would get with a consumer product. Here, there's hardcore technology. So if I'm buying a strategic product, the product that I'm buying has to match the technical requirements that you know the people in operations or R&D require. So those three things turn out to be uh, critically, uh, critically different in this case. So the strategy thing is interesting because it sort of teams back with what you were talking about, Michelle, about how they're looking for sort of details within the profiles for indicators on whether what caused so these sorts of you know bad relationships in right. a way uh what sort of industries did you talk to in gathering this research and any sort of anecdotes and or tr differences between industries that you talked to you know that that's a great question because when we started the research we thought there would be industry differences i don't think there was an industry we didn't talk with uh, over the course of all the experiments and interviews and we thought at minimum, if there weren't industry differences like automotive versus aerospace, for example, that there might be product versus service differences or manufacturing companies versus primary service companies. 
And we found no differences across the industries and no differences across products of services that was meaningful. In some ways, this was good news because it meant the decision-making process and the tools that purchasing professionals are using are fairly generalizable across the process. Cool. So I, I was just going to add one of the things that we did find in our early study, which looked at the uh, digital tools that are out there. Uh, one of the things that distinguishes B2B is the availability of some of these things. So, for example, if you go to any IT related industry, there are digital tools all over the place covering all of these characteristics. On the other hand, if you go to some of the more traditional industries, so for example, we spent a lot of time talking to people in the chemical industry, industrial chemical, they have virtually nothing. So there's a digital tool divide across industries. And one of the reasons for that, as you might suspect, is obviously if you're in IT, it comes second nature. But more importantly, if you look at the demographics who's in these industries, IT industries are populated largely by millennials, you know, new, uh, you know, high tech types of people. Whereas if you go to a traditional industry like industrial chemicals, it's your old, you know, Gen X, baby boomer types of folks who are not up on the latest tools. So again, it turns out that going back to, uh, you know, when Michelle was talking about the trends, the influx of millennials is really changing the way the buying process, the customer journey is changing. Very nice. So what so what does this lead you next to on your research horizon, I would say? Well, the next thing we've got is, is twofold. One, we want to go back and we've got a good feeling for what the tools are and whether they're order qualifiers and winners. What we want to do is to be able to uh, you know, put together the steps in the buying process. So what do I do first? What do I do second? What do I do third? And once we have that nailed down, we're going to pivot towards marketing and sales. And we're going to try to answer the question, if I'm in marketing and sales, how do I influence these tools? So, for example, we mentioned the online customer reviews, Vendop, G2 Source. If I'm a marketer, how do I influence those tools? Right. And, you know, in in B2C, if you if you follow that the last year or so, there's been a, a number of problems. For example, Amazon has actually had several lawsuits out there because companies have paid college students to review products that they never used. So obviously uh, that's a problem in B2B. It, you can't do that because I'm you know buying something that's critically essential. So we need to figure out how that's used. Uh, what this portends is a totally different way of doing marketing. In the olden days, I do some advertisements, I do some promotions, I'd send out my salesperson. But today, what I have to do is to go out and determine how can I influence all of these tools that we, we've just discussed. And it's not clear how you do that in an ethical and legal uh, fashion. So we're looking at that. And the other interesting twist that we're adding to this is that we're taking this international in that in addition to the U.S., we're, we've got some colleagues at other schools. So, for example, in India, we're working with Professor D.V.R. Sashadri, who is at the in Indian School of Business in Hyderabad, and he's basically replicating the study there. Interestingly, as you might suspect, they're not at the same level of sophistication here. 
And in India, email turns out to be the key digital tool. In Ireland and Europe, we're working with a colleague, Professor Damien McLaughlin, who's at University College uh, Dublin. Uh, we're doing research in Brazil with Professor Aurea Puga Hibiera, who is at Fundação Dom Cabral in Sao Paulo. And Michelle's colleague. Yeah, Professor uh, Asuman Attila, who is in Turkey. We'll be rounding out our, our fourth country. So you guys are all over the place. So yeah. not only will we be able to answer these questions in the U.S., but we'll, we'll be able to talk about how uh, you approach selling in different countries around the world. I guess my last question is, do you have any recommendations for these B2B digital tools and how they go forward with their developments and sort of what sort of indicators they should be focusing on You in aggregating what a lot of these producers and these uh, business consumers want? They, I was interested in maybe any advice for... Well, there are several things. The first of which if, is, is simply that if you want to survive as a B2B company, you better get on these tools now because that's where the future is going. And surprisingly, we found that if you expect to hire the best college graduates today, you better have these tools because that's what they want to work with. Right. So that's the first thing. When it comes to some of these other tools, for example, the we spent a lot of time on the online customer reviews. The process is different in that what these outfits have to do is that they have to thoroughly vet the reviewers. You can't let anyone review these products. They actually have to be individuals and companies that have actually used the product and dealt with these suppliers. And that adds a little bit of complexity to it. And in addition, one of the problems on the B2B side, I, I keep kidding that you know the, the B2B purchasing people basically follow their mother, mother's advice, which is never say anything negative about someone. So that in the B2B space, it's very hard to get negative reviews, but obviously the negative reviews are often the most useful, which means that you have to provide a certain anonymity to these people so that A, they won't be sued, but B, there won't be any blowback for them to it. So that's uh, th those are a couple of handful of things. Uh, this whole risk area is totally un underdeveloped. So for example, Dun & Bradstreet's has some of these tools that are out there. There's another company, Risk Methods, that has a, a similar set of tools that are out there. But unfortunately, a lot of the purchasing people are not aware of them. So we're at a stage, and I, I guess this is uh, you know similar to a lot of other apps that are out there, is that someone's come up with a great idea, but the problem is awareness. No one knows that they're out there. And in addition, a lot of the companies on the customer side don't know how to use them. So that's a whole nother area where someone has to figure out, once again, here's the tools we need to use. Here's how we use them. Here's when we use them. And how do we use them to make these decisions? And from our standpoint, the good news is that that's largely unknown. So you can look at it as sort of job security. More, more to research. <laughs> well, Jim, Michelle, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and talking yeah, to you. me about your research. I'm very much looking forward to your book. When does it come out again? Yeah, so we'll, once we compile all of the research that we have done, the writing will begin. <laughs> and the other thing I, I would point out is that if any of your listeners are interested in these topics, we would love 
to speak to them. So you guys have a website, right? Absolutely. Research. Uh, what what is the name? It's engagementb2b.com. All right. Awesome. Once again, thank you so much. Thank you.